0: Hey, and welcome to episode 5 of the MTG Collection Builder podcast, a podcast about collecting Magic the Gathering cards. I'm Brian, the lead and only developer of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, and in this podcast we'll be covering news relevant to magic collectors, including new products and bannings, the card of the week, and the topic of the week, which this week is Homelands, a magic expansion. This will be the first of many episodes that will be focused on a specific set. If you haven't heard of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, it's a website where you can track your collection and how much it's worth for free. You get little progress bars to show how much of a specific set you've collected, and I update the site all the time. The site is brought to you by the show and also by my patrons, and I wanted to just thank them again for their support. Um, just recently gave me a ton of really good feedback, I implemented some changes how I split variant cards and core sets, and I think it looks a lot better now. If you want to support the site directly, you can join my patrons over at Patreon. Patreon is a website where you can support content creators by giving a fixed amount a month. It could be $1, $2, whatever you want, and if you support me, you get access to cool perks, like ads being removed on the website for you, showing up on the list of supporters, at high enough tiers, you get a postcard from me. You're also automatically entered into a monthly giveaway, which is open to podcast listeners too, and not just patrons, although patrons are auto-entered. And this week, the giveaway is a foil Grand Prix promo of Prime Youthful Titan. This is a pretty cool card. It sees modern play. It's a pretty strong bomb, and I believe this is the only alternate art version of the card. All the other cards have the same art. So feel free to head on over to patreon.com slash builder. If you want to enter the giveaway, just leave a comment in the giveaway announcement post you'll see there. And now let's move on to the news. For the first item, on April 1st, Wizards of the Coast revealed a new Secret Lair Drop series. The full name of this one is Deep Breath. Secret Lair Drop series Wizards of the Coast presents After a great deliberation, we have compiled and remastered the greatest Magic the Gathering cards of all time ever. Also known as Secret Lair April Fools, and it was a pretty funny post. The set is mostly full of memes, including Stormcrow, Goblin Snowman, Mudhole, and Squire. Squire notably kind of has the jealous girlfriend meme where you have the guy looking at another girl walking by in a red dress and they have the girlfriend kind of shocked looking at him. That's pretty cool. Surprisingly, even though this was an April Fool's joke, they're actually going to print these cards and give them out to WPM stores at no charge at some point in the future after all the COVID-19 stuff is behind us. Next on the news, we have Ikoria was released. Now, because of COVID-19, it was released on April 17th in Asia, but it won't actually be released in North America and the rest of the world until May 15th. But it is available on MTG Arena now, and it's worth noting that real human drafting is now in the game. You no longer have to draft against spots. It's a much better experience. I highly recommend you try it out. And let's quickly go over Ikoria and what the set is. It's a normal set. That is composed of 274 normal cards that come from boosters, but there's also a buy box promo, borderless planeswalker cards, showcase cards, which are a comic book style, extended artwork cards, then there's the bundle promo, and then there are Godzilla monster cards, which are the original cards renamed with alternate art to match the names and images of Godzilla monsters from the Godzilla franchise. It's pretty cool. And then there are also the FM treatment cards, there are five of them, they're part of the promo packs you can get in game stores. If we can ever go back to them. And then there's three Japanese alternate art Godzilla monster cards. More about this later. Worth noting, too, Planeswalker decks have been discontinued for expansions. Instead, Commander 2020 is replacing them. And alongside Ikoria, it also released with five decks, which is a mix of reprints and new cards. The next news items, that Wizards has revealed their next secret layer. It's called Secret Lair Godzilla Land. It was spoiled by Commander Guru on Instagram. It's five basic lands, and in each basic land, you can see Godzilla visible in the background. It looks pretty cool. And the last news items, unfortunately a mistake the wizards made. The three Japanese exclusive Godzilla monster cards I just mentioned, they made an internal error, and they're actually not going to be available in the English or French collector boosters as advertised. So instead, they're going to be sending copies of these cards to local game stores, and they're supposed to provide them to the buyers who buy the collector boosters at no charge. Presumably if they buy an entire booster box, but I'm not sure about that. It's hard to say how this will impact the price of the cards. I'm not sure if there will be more or less in circulation since I don't know the rarity. But it's kind of a bummer. I'm sure Wizards feels pretty bad about it. And that's it for the news. Moving on to the card of the week, Sensei's Divining Top. Sensei's Divining Top is one generic mana, so any color of mana, for an artifact at uncommon. And it reads, pay one mana, look at the top three cards of your library, then put them back in any order. It also has a tap ability that reads, Draw a card, then put Sensei's Divining Top on top of its owner's library. This card was originally printed in Champions of Kamigawa. It's also been reprinted in Eternal Masters and From the Vault Exiled. You might be surprised to hear that this uncommon is $35. That's insane for an uncommon, so, so what happened? Looking at the card, you can tell that just for one mana, you can reorder the top three cards of your library. That's pretty strong and difficult to interact with unless the opponent has artifact removal, but wait, there's more. You can also tap this at any time to draw a card, and then put sense dividing top on top of your library. So it can kind of defend itself from artifact removal, and it could keep improving all of your draw steps. And as a result, this saw widespread tournament play everywhere since it's so versatile. But it was ultimately banned, not because it was too powerful, but because it slowed games down too much. People are constantly activating it, and it just made the game drag. And that could be an issue when you're at a tournament and you're timed and everything. So it's been banned in every format except Vintage and Commander. There's also an interesting interaction with a card called Counterbalance, which is an enchantment that lets you reveal the top card of your library to try to counter a spell if the converted mana cost of the card you revealed matches the converted mana cost of the spell you're trying to counter. So, if your opponent tries to play a 1-mana spell, for example, you can actually instant speed put Sensei's Divining Top on top of your library and then guarantee that you have a 1-mana card on top of your library to reveal Basically making it so your opponent can't cast one mana spells. And a personal anecdote. I first started collecting magic around Champions of Kamigawa time. And on eBay I bought a a 4x common-uncommon set for $31, meaning 4 of every common and 4 of every uncommon. It's something I like to do with new sets because it was a cheap way to get most of the cards in the set. And it just sat in my closet forever and eventually got sorted into a folder. And I was just really shocked to find, holy crap, this is $35 each. When I saw that, I immediately ran and confirmed, yay, I have four of these in mint condition. And I still have them today. So that's kind of the exciting part of magic sometimes is you know, that sweet treasure you have in a, in a closet or in a shoebox suddenly rising in value over time. And that's the card of the week, Sensei's Divining Top. And let's move on to our main topic, homelands. It's the first of many set shows that I'm going to do, as I mentioned, and we're going to dive into it from a collector's perspective. We're going to go over its history, what it physically is, notable cards, and takeaways. So Homelands is the seventh Magic expansion. It was released on October 14th, 1995, and it's set on the plane of Ulgrotha. It's composed of 115 cards, 25 commons, 47 uncommons, and 43 rares. And if those quantities sound weird, that's because back in the day you actually had multiple rarities within each version. We'll learn about that in another episode, I think. Interestingly, Commons had two pieces of art each, so this is really a 140-card set, if you consider each card like its unique printing, which I do. And let's go over some of the history of the set. So let me take you way back to 1993 when this all started. It was really an explosive period of magic history. Alpha's original six-month supply sold out in a few weeks as they were driving around the coast selling the cards. And beta's printing also sold out in a few weeks. It was insane. And there was a mad dash to make more expansions. Uh, It was a hot commodity. So they spun up in parallel, a bunch of teams working on expansions. Some guys were working on Legends and then some guys got pinged to work on what became Homelands. Peter Atkinson, the founder of Witches of the Coast, actually enlisted the aides of two of his friends to work on the set, Kyle and Scott. One works in customer service at WotC and the other one is part of the continuity team, which is like the lore team, the story team. That's what it was called back then, and they hadn't played as much Magic as the other designers working on other sets, and they took a very top-down approach with Homelands, meaning they focused on the story they wanted to tell first, and then fleshed cards out out of that. This did result in a detailed story involving Sarah and Baron Sengir, but once R&D got their hands on the cards, they saw some serious issues with the set, as it featured in many weak and unplayable cards. Some of the staff didn't even want to release the set, and there's a bit of a conflict within the company, but Peter Atkinson wanted specifically to keep the promise he made to his designers. So the set was released and there wasn't much development work done beforehand. RD, I think, kind of threw up their hands and they just let it go, mostly as is with a few changes. And unfortunately, this resulted in what is considered the worst set in Magic history. It had many weak, unplayable cards, as I mentioned, and in a time before the art of perfecting set designs had been established, you can see where this would lead draft or sealed play. It wasn't good. Here are a few examples of some of the weak cards in the set. The first one is Abbey Matron. It's 2 and a white, so 3 mana total for a Cleric. And it has 1 power and 3 toughness, 1-3. One, one and it has the ability to pay a white mana and tap, gain plus 0, plus 3 until end of turn. So this is a 3 mana 1-3 with an activated tap ability to become a... Three mana, one, six. This can kind of lead to dirty games unless you have the ability to breach through this wall and it's not very interactive. It's okay if if sets have defensive creatures like this, but this set is full of nothing but dirty creatures and weak creatures. There are a couple like four fours and five fives, but this one six will kind of stop them all and this set doesn't really have that much of anything to deal with that. The next card is Cemetery Gate. It's two and a black for a wall. It's an 05, and it has protection from black, and that's it. So it's a black wall that has protection from black. So it's not going to attack and get through anything without some shenanigans from other sets. And it'll block black creatures really well because it has protection. And, and that's about it. Again, another dirtly card that doesn't really do anything. And in a set with a small card pool, this is a small set with uh, 115 cards, it's not... You don't really have the room to play around with cards like this. You really need more of an impact, especially given the power level of other sets. We also had some strange color pie violations. Although the concept wasn't really that established in 1995, people kind of knew it intuitively. An example would be Ghost Hounds. It's one and a black for a 1-1 with Vigilance. And if a white creature blocks it, It gains first strike until the end of turn. So a 1-1 potential first striker for 2 mana with Vigilance. Again, super small and dirtly. Another example is Willow Fairy. It's 1 and a green for a 1-2 with flying. So a green Stormcrow. Again, green usually doesn't get flying. They'll sometimes make exceptions where if you have a cycle of dragons in a set, they'll do a green dragon because that's cool. But for the most part, green isn't supposed to get flyers. And here is a a very small dirtly flyer in green. But it's not all bad news, the set did have some notable cards, either for their playability or collecting interests. Some examples include Serrated Arrows. It's four mana for an artifact, and it enters a battlefield with three arrowhead counters on it. At the beginning of your upkeep, if there are no arrowhead counters and serrated arrows, sacrifice it. And it has the ability tap, remove an arrowhead counter from serrated arrows, put a minus one minus one counter on target creature. That's pretty cool, that's not too bad. You can machine gun something big or spread it out over a couple X ones. That's not bad at all. And flavor-wise, the arrow head counters a superior sacrifice and it makes sense. You ran out of arrows. So the reason this is notable is because at the time you had a lot of powerful two ones and th- this was a great way of dealing with them. They often had protection from specific colors and this is a colorless artifact so it gets around that. And there was also a tournament rule where every deck had to include at least five cards from each set that was legal in the format. This is my first time hearing about this when I researched for Homeland, and I'd like to look more into that. But that, that feels like a bad rule, like, oh, we're going to force you to buy a product you don't want, and then you have to use that product in your decks. But I guess it, it is what it was back then. And this notable card that actually saw playability back then, it's only 62 cents today. It's It's kind of sad. Another notable card is Apocalypse Chime, which is also known as the last expansion hosing card. Now this sounds like something out of an unset, check this out. Apocalypse Chime is two generic mana for an artifact and has an ability to pay two mana and tap, sacrifice Apocalypse Chime, destroy all non-token permanents with the name originally printed in the Homeland's expansion. They can't be regenerated. I'm not sure what the design intent was for these, but it's interesting to think about that you can wipe out an entire set from play. Another notable example is Memory Lapse, so this one kind of doesn't count. It's one in a blue for an instant that reads counter-target spell, if that spell is countered in this way, put it on top of its owner's library instead of into the player's graveyard. And the reason why it doesn't count, because it was actually designed in Mirage while people were working on it, but it was inserted into Homelands after another card was removed from Homelands. So it was kind of an insert from a set that was in development. And as a result, it was printed first in Homelands, but it actually originated in Mirage. Another notable card would be Temerian Fiends, and this is the last anti-card they ever made. The set that includes some cool flavor-wise legendary creatures like Baron Sengir himself and Adamula, but for the most part, it was full of duds, and this directly impacted its collecting value. Only four cards in the set are worth around two dollars; the rest are below a dollar. So, four out of 115-ish cards, two dollars. The rest are under a dollar easily. So, you can actually own the entire set for 25 bucks including the variant arts for the commons. If you wanted to buy a draft cube, it would be about $57, but please don't do this. I, I'm honestly considering programming in a warning, so if you move your mouse over the Buy It Now button for that draft cube, I'll move your mouse cursor away for you because that, that is a really bad idea. But I, I do think it still has interest for a collector. It's pretty cool that some of the cards have alternate art within the set. You didn't see that much, because it caused a lot of confusion for vendors. Like what do we name these things, right? We have four or two, In this set two variants of each common, do I name it common A, common B? TCG player has a, a very inconsistent naming for these already and it causes a lot of developers like myself quite a bit of pain to map them. So that, that's a problem, but it's also interesting for a collector. And I think it's a pretty cool slice of magic history where you can see how low magic can go. Like things can go really downhill if the development or design doesn't go quite right. The art is pretty cool in an old-school sort of way. Some of it borders on Eldritch, which is exciting, at least to me. And I think this leads to some cool challenges, too. I think it would be kind of neat to take some of these cards and combine them with other older cards to make a draft cube that is actually involves these cards and makes them somewhat playable. Maybe you can inject a ton of related flavor, maybe more Sarah Angel stuff, more Vampire stuff, more Minotaur stuff, and mix all that and kind of get the feel of Homelands and some of the story but in a special draft cube that you would enjoy. Or you could get together with a friend, buy a draft cube, and then just play it together once in a draft just to feel out how bad the set really is so you can kind of experience it for yourself. I have this on my bucket list, but it's not a high priority. And another cool challenge that I've been thinking about would be redesigning this set to retain its flavor but creating balanced archetypes and making it a fun experience with what we know about modern design. But ultimately, the set did feature pretty good storytelling, at least for the time. And wizards learned to listen to R&D, like R&D threw up their hands like, whatever, we're releasing this, you know, you're gonna see. And R&D, I think, also learned to have a little bit more of a backbone. This lent them credibility. And future designs went on to more experienced Magic players. I don't think they took as many risks with friends of friends helping design sets in parallel. It wasn't worth the fallout. And it also showed the top-down design can be risky. Although it can still work out really well as it did with a set like Innistrad, widely considered to be the best draft format of all time. And that's a brief description of Homelands, top-down. It's a small failed set with an interesting history, and I think it's cool to learn from sets like these. They're also cool to collect, so you can kind of trash talk the sets to your friends when they're over. So I wanted to thank you for joining me for this episode of the MTG Collection Builder podcast. If you have any suggestions, either for the podcast or for the website, feel free to reach out to me via email at brian at mtgcb.com, at Facebook, where I'm mtgcollectionbuilder, or on Twitter, where I'm at mtg underscore cb. If you want to support the website or the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder and check out all the pledge levels. You can get access to exclusive updates and polls, ad remover for your account, and much, much more. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you guys next time. I wonder how the secret segment of the show is going to work out once I choose on a soundtrack for the intro and outro for the podcast. Well, anyway, welcome to the secret segment, and today I wanted to talk about entitlement and respect. Specifically, I've seen some recent announcements and the social media's response to it, where it really has me thinking about how people treat each other on the internet, especially when it comes to outrage and entitlement and respect. So, Watsi announced that they made it, they goofed up, right? They made an error with their Godzilla cards that are Japanese, exclusive art, and they're in Japanese. And they should have been the collector boosters in America and France, and they're not going to be. And they tried to make it right. They said they're going to give copies to the local game store. So, if you buy the product, they're supposed to give them to you for free. But people are just really rude and nasty about it, man. Like, crazy. And they're either being rude or nasty about that particular topic or just using it as a platform to complain about other things Watsi is doing. Now, don't get me wrong, it's it's okay to be critical, and it's okay to give people constructive criticism, or to be upset about a change that you feel doesn't make sense. And, and I get passion for a hobby, but it's really about treating people with kindness and respect. There, there's a line where you can be respectful and still assertive about what you believe in, but a lot of people are just nasty. And Channel Fireball, recently they released a pro subscription, which makes sense to me. Like. That they have to do something during the pandemic because their warehouse is actually closed. So they're not bringing in anywhere near the amount of revenue. This will keep the lights on until things go back to normal. But it also makes sense that people are disappointed that previously free content is now gated behind a paywall. So you have to be a Channel Fireball Pro member to access some of the articles, most notably being LSV set reviews for limited uh, when a new set comes out and probably has constructed one as well. And, and I get the disappointment there. And I know that. That was intentional, right? They, they paywalled that one because they know it's popular, so they're going to get more people subscribing. But it used to be a free service, right? And that leads to almost like a sense of entitlement. Now, I understand if you're disappointed. That's totally cool. I was a little disappointed too until I realized, you know what, I'm actually going to support these guys because I love what they do. And that's okay if you can't afford to, it, it was just my choice, but some of the comments again were just nasty, like personally attacking LSV, you know? no longer talking about the topic, but just going to insults and it's sad. I wish people were kinder to each other. And I also see this like every Kickstarter for a new board game that I join, half the comments are just really nasty. Like, oh, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, oh, this component sucks. And some of it feels like really impulsively contrary personal opinions about things that maybe don't really have a strong basis or sometimes contradict what other people in the community want but they still feel really strongly about it, like my way of the highway. And I see this in online PC games too. So in reviews and forums, people like calling the designers idiots and morons and you guys should add this. Where's my Apple support? Where's my Linux support? And it just like outrage, 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 demands, demands, demands. And what are we doing here? Especially for free content. Like this reminds me of aggressive drivers on the road, especially in Southern California where I live. I mean, I've been honked at for stopping at stop signs, for driving the speed limit in the rightmost lane with plenty of room to pass me, by super old ladies. Like it's, it's kind of crazy. And like, is it the veil of anonymity? Is that what's going on, or is it like a symptom of greater imbalance in people's lives? Like I know we're in trouble times right now, and life can be hard for some people. Is it just human nature? People like to be impulsively contrary or assertive because. It gives them a sense of empowerment, and if you do things that make you feel a way that you enjoy, that becomes a habit. Is it a mix of all of it? I'm not sure, but I just wanna give you the perspective from a content creator side. Creating content is really hard, whether you're making a podcast or making a website or writing articles or making YouTube videos, whatever you do, it's it's hard to get things done in a very limited amount of time because we all have busy lives, and it takes a lot of directed concerted effort to do it. And they're often passions of love and people would love to make everything perfectly in a way that makes everyone happy, but it's impossible. People have different views on the right and wrong way of doing things. And often people with no pedigree in design whatsoever will have very strong opinions about what game designers should be doing despite a bunch of competing pressures. And they'll get to the point to where they're insulting specific people, even though they might not even be the shot callers It might be an executive behind the scenes. And I've been very lucky that with MTG Collection Builder, out of 30,000 users, I've only ever had two be rude to me. One apologized right away, which is cool. And the other one didn't, but I wish them well. I mean, it's cool to be passionate about things. and But I do think passionate about stuff, even if it's free, sometimes does lead people down this road where they become very entitled and and rude. And I've even seen nasty comments on open source programming projects. Like, dude, a team of people made this for free and you're like ripping into them, calling them morons. Like, what's happening here? Like, contribute to the code if you want to make it better. And ultimately, like, I'm not trying to vent. It's more that this behavior really hurts people. I've heard from a ton of content creators, including Marshall from Limited Resources and others, where like they get a nasty comment on Twitter, and it actually ruins your night sometimes. Like, I like when when one of the guys was rude to me for MTGCB. Like, I was pretty upset for a couple hours. Like it feels so wrong and you still feel bad like you did something wrong. And maybe I just need more of a backbone, but I think people should start being nicer to each other. So my takeaway from this ramble is really, you know, treat others kindly, like kind of the way you'd want to be treated. And and the next time you go on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter and you see a chain of replies to some new content that's been released and the top five are negative, like really harsh, unnecessarily nasty criticism, maybe don't add that sixth one. You know, Maybe be the one that gives criticism from a polite standpoint, that's really positive. I think that's the way to go. And as always, if you have feedback for MTGCB, feel free to hit me up anytime.